Hello and welcome to Net Posse, a podcast about activism and technology. In this episode, we will talk to Zach Rogoff from the Free Software Foundation. So I've always been um, interested in technology and design and building stuff, but I've also always thought that it was important to spend time doing um, social justice work and broadly defined. Um, so I've sort of flirted with both and spent a lot of time trying to decide between which one I was going to dedicate my career to and then eventually figured out that I don't think I need to pick one. I can do both. Today we're in Boston, Massachusetts at the office of the Free Software Foundation, which has a handful of cool little stuffed canoes around the office. The Free Software Foundation just celebrated its 30th anniversary, and I'm here with Zach Rogoff, who works on campaigns at the Free Software Foundation. Give me a quick introduction to the Free Software Foundation. Okay, so... Uh, as Drew said, we just celebrated our 30th anniversary. Um, the FSF was founded in 1985 by a group of radical programmers led by Richard Stallman. Um, basically, the founding idea is that software should be in control of the users rather than the company that made it or whoever made it. And we have been, for the last 30 years, finding ways to make that, that dream a reality. Um, the important distinction to get is that most software is proprietary software, which means that the only thing that the user receives is compiled compiled object code, which you can run, but you can't change and you can't study. So it's a black box. Um, and in not all cases, but many cases, um, the people who use the software take advantage of that to do things that the users probably wouldn't actively consent to. Um, most prominent example right now in the news is surveillance, but that's only one thing. Um, so that's not to say that all proprietary software is necessarily evil in my opinion, um, but it definitely shifts power in a way that that isn't necessary and isn't desirable. So with free software, the code is available as well as the executable program. And if the user wants to, they can study the code so they know what the executable program is doing. They can modify the code. They can share it, crucially, um, and this gives a level of power uh, to the users that proprietary software can't hope to achieve. So we have spent 30 years trying to find the best ways to promote free software, and we've faced a lot of interesting struggles and challenges along the way. What are some of those best ways? Um, what are those struggles? Yeah, so the central, this thing that started off the Free Software Foundation was um, basically these licenses, software licenses. So when somebody writes software um, and then they, they release it, I mean, whenever you, whenever you create a digital product and then you release it, you have to face the reality that because digital, digital things can be copied gratis and instantaneously, um, you don't have the same kind of control over it that you do if you like make a sandwich and sell it to somebody. Um, there's like different rules of the road. So... Um, people have software licenses that use the existing copyright law, proprietary license that just basically says, like, you can't do anything with this that uh, that I don't want you to do with it. Ask me first. Um, and that's, you know, what you'd find on, like, Microsoft in addition to a bunch of other restrictions about what you can and can't do with it. But um, in the 80s, Richard Stallman, again, the founder of the Free Software Foundation, and some other people came up with this idea of copyleft, which is a legal hack on the copyright system. Um, and it basically ensures that um, 
the software that you create is free software, meaning, again, that you have the right to modify and redistribute it and that you can explore it and study it, and it's not a black box. It's actually an open system that you can understand. Um, and so the problem is that if a developer wants to convey those rights to a user, um, it's actually non-trivial to state that legally um, in such a way that someone else can't take it and change it. So the purpose of these licenses that the FSF publishes um, is to think through all of the legal stuff. And then we publish this license that's like tested and legally robust. Um, and then developers who want their software to be free can attach it to their code. Because otherwise, if the developer just types like at the top of the software program, like this is free software or something like that that's vague, um, there isn't really anything to stop. Or there's not much to stop somebody who has more legal resources from coming and appropriating it and then restricting the use of it. Um, that's like a kind of vague, maybe roundabout explanation. But um, so one of basically the point is that I think I'll restate it is that um, people want to make their software free. But once you release stuff into the world, a lot of the time people will incorporate it into proprietary things and then restrict the use of those proprietary things, taking advantage of the work the free software developers did. A lot of free software developers don't want that. Some are okay with it. It depends on who you talk to. But what we provide is this license, which is basically like, we did the legal homework for you. Stick this on top of your software. If you do, there is a, a body of precedent, basically, that that shows that like it will be interpreted by the courts as respecting your rights as a free software user. Um, and so the main licenses that we publish, the main one is the GNU general public license, the GPL. Um, so that's one of the biggest things that we do. Um, we also help when somebody doesn't obey the terms of the license, we help them figure out how to do it. So a common example is like with free software, if you send someone a program that's an executable compiled program, you need to also send them the source code. And it's a frequent mistake that people make that they don't send the source code properly. And so if we find that somebody is doing this, we have an expert on staff whose job is to work with them, explain to them why they're legally required to if, if it has the GPL license attached to it, and then help them figure out a way that makes sense for them to distribute it. Um, yeah, so that's one thing. Um, another thing is that free software kind of challenges the dominant paradigm in the software world and the world of technology in general, which is that it's that world is generally very corporate dominated um, as opposed to being dominated by like grassroots organizations or even the government. And this is part of the reason that I think it's been hard to mix social justice and technology communities. Um, but... Anyway, so the free software movement challenges that paradigm because it's radically decentralized and focuses on personal liberty and autonomy instead of basically consumerism, which is sort of the guiding principle, I think, of most people's involvement with technology. And so that, that creates friction and has for the last 30 years between our movement and the mainstream technology world and its there have been some basically some propaganda attacks against free software by the mainstream technology world. And so we provide an alternative voice in that fight 
to say to support free software and help free software users and developers show that there's someone to stick up for them. So an example is that in the 90s, um, free software was gaining traction in the the internet um, because the internet was growing rapidly and free software since the beginning has been a core to the internet. Um, and in what way? So the most popular web server applications are free software and have been for a long time. So it's not necessarily something that an end user who just goes to google.com or whatever notices that they're using free software, but the server, which is the program that creates the website and shares it with your computer is running free software um, a plurality of the time. Um, The actual statistics shift, but the most popular web server programs are free software. Um, And then lots of other infrastructural things about the web um, rely on free software or free standards and protocols. Um, And um, but so um, there was a lot of momentum in the 90s and the early 2000s. There still is, but just specific historical case towards free software and um, was coming in and challenging what at the time was like, it's still this sort of mostly, but especially then monopolar world where it's like Microsoft is this like behemoth that dominates this industry. Um, And a lot of proprietary software companies found it threatening for various reasons. Like they thought it would cut into their sales or they just didn't like ideologically that it, Free Software proposed this more like decentralized, non-consumerist way of dealing with software, and so there are actually like, you know, the word for it in the free software community is fear, uncertainty, and doubt, right? Like FUD, just negative propaganda campaigns about free software, especially funded by Microsoft in like the early two thousands, if I have my dates right, um, where they're just trying to get people to be scared of it and think it's not legit and say things like, you know, it doesn't work because there's no company behind it. Like, how can you trust it? That kind of stuff. Um, which is ironic because recently Microsoft announced that they're going to, or that they have their own internal GNU Linux distribution that they use for their cloud services. <laughs> um, so I feel like it's sort of an I told you so moment. So those are two things. Well, um, I think I'm curious about... There's like developers and there's users and there's tech companies and there's free software foundation that has a different perspective than tech companies. But what's like the real world impact for people? Like what's the impact of free software on the lives of people who live in the US, people who live around the world, Mm -hmm. people who maybe aren't developers or who aren't technologists? Yeah. So that's like, I think a really important question and it's hard to answer because there is an impact, but it's in most cases kind of diffuse and indirect. And so there's like a bunch of ways I can try to enumerate impacts. Um, like the, the the point where you see the strongest, the biggest clear difference is like if you are a software developer. But obviously most people are not software developers, and that's it's it's been forgotten too many times. Um, but so. Uh, this is again this is coming from my perspective rather than what the Free Software Foundation would say, but one of the biggest impacts that it has on it is sort of an economic economic impact in that it 
if you think about like from a from a Marxist perspective, like thinking about you can think about software as and, and especially like software infrastructural building blocks that people use to build other programs. You can think about it as like the means of production. Like people aren't able to build competitively build lots of software applications from scratch. Like any software application, whether it's developed within a company and it's proprietary or it's developed uh, as free software, will use existing building blocks and software libraries. And the fact that those free applications are available, um, those, those free libraries are available, and also that there's free software available for people to use on their computers to make things is has, a, has an economic impact. So like the software industry, the burgeoning software industry in India, like wouldn't look the same as it does without free software. And there's tons of people around the world. This is this is not your, this is not average people, but it's people with an exceptional computer interest and aptitude, who have taught themselves programming and system administration by downloading free software and then using it since they were kids and taking their computer apart digitally as well as physically. And those people have careers now that they couldn't have if it didn't exist. So that's one. Um, Another thing is something that I think is coming more than it is already here, but it's a crucial step for like the role of computers in our lives in the 21st century, which is um, basically using free software as a means to, to guarantee a high level of transparency in the, the socio-technical systems that are crucial to our society and to our lives. So there's this, like most starkly, there's this example of like, life or death software which is like um you know software that helps run a plane or software that does air traffic control or software that um runs on uh like embedded medical devices that that are inside your body um and so free software is inherently auditable which means that an independent expert can review what's going on with it and how it works instead of it being a black box and so there's a growing movement that I think we need to push really hard on, especially for life or death things, but also for government and infrastructure, anything that we depend on um, to make it be free software so that people can see what it's doing, so that we don't have to count on the people who already have power over these systems to also make the source code work properly. Um, so use free software as a tool for transparency and accountability, basically. Um, and so it's interesting because those two things, like these are just two of the everyday, you know, there's potential impacts or real world impacts of free software and they work based on different properties of free software. Like the first one that I talked about is more about the fact that it's gratis and that because it's, it's legal to copy it for free. Um, and also the fact about the fact, sort of about the fact that it's transparent, like this thing that you can use it as a means of, it's the liberates the means of production. And then the second one is more about the fact that it's just that it's transparent. Um, and so they're they're related because with software being transparent and being copyable are very hard to separate. Um, but those are two things. Um, I think also it's part of. Uh, Free software makes sense as part of a holistic movement for basically community and liberty over centralization and corporate control. Because, um, and this is something that I really care about explaining to people because I meet a lot of people who are like, I'm an anarchist, and then they like, they're using like, you know, a Mac. 
Um, and you can be an anarchist and use a Mac, or you can want to believe in local farming and use a Mac, sure. But those same tenets of wanting things to be decentralized and in control of people, like the people using them and serving the people that use them, also should extend to the computers that we use. And it's ever more important every time another part of our lives moves onto a computer that we see that and that we assert our right to autonomy and liberty in a digital space as well as a physical space. With regards to like social justice movements, in many activist groups, they focus on a long-term vision and a short-term vision. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you see as like? I think I think you've explained in a lot of ways the long-term vision for where where you see this mm-hmm. going. What do you think about a short-term vision? Like, what does success look like? Yeah. So obviously, there's there's different routes you can take. Um, there's different venues that we're pursuing, but two of the biggest ones are um, federated decentralized web systems. Federated decentralized, decentralized web, web systems. systems. And what does that mean? One. And so, what that means is like something that's happened. The internet originally was radically decentralized. So, like the original model of media or the 20th century model of media creation is the broadcast media model, where it's Centralized. There's like a company, say like the New York Times, that creates content and then distributes it from a central point. And if you want to have be, if you want to be heard, then you have to go talk to the New York Times. It's like a toy example, but um, they're the gatekeepers. And um, one of the things that was really cool about the web and the internet in general originally was that because of the technological architecture of it. It was radically decentralized. Anybody can create a web server with their own computer with a surprisingly small amount of training. It sounds intimidating, but it's not actually hard. Um, And then anybody in the world can visit your computer just about as easily as they can visit Microsoft's website. Um, But it's your computer. They can visit your website, but that is visiting your computer in a sense. Um, But as sort of capitalism and the internet collided in the 90s and the 2000s, companies found ways to create new services that were really exciting and people liked, like social media, YouTube, um, you name it. But they also took that opportunity to re-centralize or to centralize the internet in the first place um, because centralization is easier to monetize, quote unquote. Um, So this leaves us in a bad situation because not only are we dependent on certain companies for basically the communications platforms that run our lives, like Twitter, YouTube, um, Facebook, but also we're giving those people our personal data because their business models rely on collecting information about us. And when I say personal data, I don't necessarily mean your social security number, but your browsing history can be just as personal as your social security number in a lot of instances. Um, So it makes us vulnerable from a cultural perspective because a small number of powerful actors that don't necessarily have our best interests at heart control our communication and our media um, and often assert like rights that you would think are ridiculous over the stuff that you put on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Um, Like what? Like, so 
uh, I would probably want to do more research before making a specific claim about that about this. But at least for a long time, Facebook basically said that like anything you put on Facebook, like they can just do whatever they want with. Which is ridiculous if you think about it, because it's like a Facebook page has like your name on, it's got a picture of you. Like you think of it as expressing yourself, but they're also kind of like harvesting everything you say or they can. And those terms change too. Yeah, they change all the time. People don't look at them. And I don't think it's realistic to expect people to look at them because they're opaque and confusing and seem irrelevant. Um, But the second thing is what people have been really highlighting in the last few years is the, the, the data centralization that's computer security is a huge topic and I won't try to get into it in a lot of detail, but there's this concept in computer security of like a honeypot, which is basically if somebody is looking to steal people's information and the information is all centralized on one computer, it makes it way easier to steal it because you only have to break into one computer digitally and then you can get all of it. And this creates that situation. And that's exactly why the NSA set up like their famous PRISM program, which basically is they just work with companies through coercion and other means to get the companies to give them access to people's personal information, and they use that to surveil people. Um, so basically, the movement to re-decentralize the web is trying to create software solutions that serve the same needs as like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, um, without this kind of centralization. And maintaining freedom and autonomy in a way that's commensurate with the ideas of the free software movement. And um, so I, like, I, I don't think it's worth getting into it in a lot of technical detail, but the basic idea is like, again, so say YouTube, you've got like these servers that are controlled by Google and Google controls what goes in and out. Um, and it's hard to exist in YouTube and like exert control over like meaningful control that you can verify and it's definitely real over like what's done with the information that you submit to it and that it collects about you. But by contrast, there's one project called GNU Media Goblin, which does a similar thing to YouTube. It create it's a software program that runs on a server that creates a website that you go to that has media that people can post to, um, videos, pictures, whatever. And the FSF runs a Media Goblin uh, server. But in addition to being free software, um, itself, it's set up for the system called Federation, which means that it supports, you can create a constellation of different independently controlled Media Goblin servers, each with their own library of media, and somebody can easily visit one page that collects the media from all of the servers, so they don't have to deal with like going to all these different websites. It's still it's still a streamlined user experience like, like YouTube is, but they're in for, but the all the media isn't saved all in one place, and all the user account information isn't saved all in one place. Saved at different media goblin instances spread out around the web, and if say one of the media goblin uh, server owners says, "I'm going to start abusing the users of my server," like I'm going to install mal- malware on their computer when they visit my site, or I'm going to start having obnoxious, misleading advertisements that have like a big button that says "download," and instead it downloads like a virus or something. If that happens it's way, way easier for the users to move their personal account to another Media Goblin instance, copy the media off if they want to, um, than it is in the case of something like YouTube, where people start using it, and they build a community, and it gets kind of like locked in, and then YouTube can mess with you and do stuff you don't like. So it solves... It, it, decentralization using something like Federation addresses the need for spreading out user information, but it also addresses the 
need to spread out basically control over cultural works. Um, so that's that's one of the big things that I basically a success would look like in five years more people know about these alternative decentralized media services and less people feel like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter are the only option for those things. Um, another thing is um, availability of free software to control the low-level uh, parts of our computers, especially mobile computers, um, because companies have also taken the rise of mobile computing as an opportunity to get people to buy computers that are more locked down than ever before. Um, and as a good example, like a normal cell phone that you have in the United States or Europe or most places, it, it's basically two computers in a, in a tiny box. There's one, which is the one you interact with that runs like Android or iOS um, or something else. And that one can be run with mostly free software. But then there's another one, which is basically a radio that communicates with the cell system, which is by a complicated combination of law and technological restrictions is basically a black box that's opaque and proprietary and has the ability to, it basically has interrupt power over the computer that you do interact with. So even if you try to make your phone, you try to make sure the stuff on your phone is, say, not spying on you, um, the other little computer in there can just reach in there, change the software on it, spy on you, do whatever you want. And there's lots of, this is documented that, like, some government security agencies at various points in history have had and maybe still have the ability to, like, remotely turn on the microphone and the cell phone and just record what you're doing. So that's a stark example, but it's only one of them. Similar issues exist for laptops um, and other computer hardware. And so that's a complicated thing to address. Um, but if it would be really awesome if five years from now, like, it was easier to buy hardware devices that were that you could use without without relying on black box proprietary software and the free software foundation has a program called respects your freedom which is a certification program um, where companies that want to make hardware devices that respect your freedom by working with all free software not requiring any proprietary software they create them and they send them to us and we take them apart and make sure it's true and then we put a certification mark on it so if you care about this you can go to fsf.org slash ryf and see these devices and buy one if they interest you. There's a, now a pretty wide variety, including laptops, 3D printers, some computer peripherals. I'm curious, either as someone who works at FSF or just as Zach, a person who cares about these kind of things, what do you think is like a mechanism for making those kinds of changes? Do you see that, mm. do you see that being technology? Do you see that being policy? Yeah. What you said a little bit about those two computers and a phone made me think about those two different directions. Like, one of those is easy to make free software, maybe the higher-level stuff that runs a yeah. phone. The other one is a little bit trickier. What do you think is a direction that could make those changes? What do you think the mechanism is? Yeah, so um, for that one in particularly, I think it's, it's really... Um, I don't know exactly what will be successful, and really we need a you know, catchphrase like diversity of tactics, but... It's definitely. I feel strongly that government basically should step in to legally require the people that make our devices um, to make them transparent to us and modifiable, so that we can have control and verify that they're not spying on us. Um, and it's it's important 
I should have said this earlier, but basically to point out that to have that kind of control, we don't we don't have to have everybody to be a programmer who understands every part of a phone or something. Like even the most advanced specialized experts don't understand everything that goes into even the smallest computer. They understand just part of it. But the important part is that if it's transparent and we can modify it, then somebody will look at it and will make it known if it's doing something we don't want it to do, um, which is not possible with proprietary software as easily. Anyway, so I think that regulation and legislation are crucially important. There's also work to be done in the judicial system and organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the justice system, they do a lot of legal work, um, which is really important. And another thing is just sort of a cultural thing of getting people to care about technology and its role in their lives. And, um, you know, it's not going to look exactly like the, the food movement, but it's a good parallel because it's something where it's like everybody uses food every day. Um, why don't we start thinking about this critically and where it comes from? And everybody uses technology every day, but most people don't think about it critically at all. And so we need that. Um, and we're seeing a rise in that kind of consciousness in people with high-profile stuff like the SOPA-PIPA fight or the net neutrality fight. Um, but it's, it's tricky. So I think legal action is important, uh, legislative, regulatory, which, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but like you can petition. It's, it's when regulatory agencies in the United States at least make new decisions, they ask for community feedback from the world first. So you can give that feedback and organizations like the FSF are interested in helping you do that. Um, and then also just a cultural movement to reject centralized proprietary systems that steal our autonomy and go for things that we can control and thrive on. All right, cool. Now let's talk about magic. All right. <laughs> if you had a magic wand and you could wave this magic wand and do one thing to make uh, to make the world more free or open or just or fair, the kind of things that you want, What's that thing that you would do? Like, what's one thing that you would change, like, right away? Hmm. That's a cool question. Um, so, um, one thing I would change right away is... Uh, I guess this is partly like in my head because we were just talking about this, but um, I think about this one a lot anyway, is I would make it so that basically government procurement all over the world for all governments that were at least like vaguely democratic um, really heavily favored free software. Um, right now the system is like most software used by most people is proprietary, but in the U.S. government especially, like, it's, like, Microsoft. Hooray. And then, like, software made by, like, this is just a ridiculous factoid that I believe it's Lockheed Martin, the people that make missiles and stuff. They provide the contact management software that's used in Congress. So, like, if somebody in Congress wants to, uh, has a problem with their contact management software, they call Lockheed Martin's support line. Um, Anyway, so it's just, it's a good sort of issue. It's a good place 
to start thinking about the fact that free software is important for accountability and citizens to benefit from the software. Um, so, yeah, so I would say, like, you know, I would make it so that there was, you know, when the, when the U.S. government and other governments commission software solutions, they, they're not allowed to use proprietary stuff. They have to use stuff that the citizens can inspect and understand, but also copy and use for their own purposes. Do you think that would have prevented NSA spying? So, like, for a second, mm-hmm. like, say say we had that, and governments were using uh, free software, um, and not just city governments, city governments who provide services like building roads and all those, like, things that we interact mostly when we mo- interact with government, but, like, federal government as well. Like, say, say that NSA mm-hmm. and those agencies were using free software. Do you think that that would have prevented the sort of mass surveillance that has happened? Do you think it would have done it in a different way? Do you think it would have been different? What are your thoughts? Yeah. um, I think the short answer is no, um, because the level of control that the NSA has over the global communications infrastructure goes even beyond software into, like, hardware and, like, human coercion. But it would help. And definitely, like, the the same values and freedoms that are embodied by free software are probably the antidote to surveillance, like decentralization, accountability, the ability to like verify what your hardware and software are doing. But free software in, alone isn't enough. Um, decentralization is really important because of the honeypot issue I talked about before. Like even if Facebook was using all free software, um, they still have everybody's information in their in their database, and if the NSA compels them, then they're going to hand it over. Um, and, you know, I think most people would be surprised to learn the power that government agencies have when it comes to getting people's personal information. It flagrantly flies in the face of the Fourth Amendment right to privacy. Um, so, okay, so, uh, yeah, so I think it's not enough. Um, we also need like radical decentralization of control and data um, on all levels, hardware and software and social of our, of our networks. Cause the NSA has like, um, like literally things built into the hardware, the wires that make up the internet that just copies off all the information. Uh, yeah. And then another interesting thing about this is that like the NSA actually uses a lot of free software um, because the kinds of like super large scale data processing that they do to churn through everybody's information and find stuff that's interesting to them, a lot of the best tools for that were developed for the scientific world and information processing stuff and our free software. <laughs> so yeah, it's more than just that. Free software is just a tool. Interesting. Uh, well, we only have a couple more minutes. I wanted to ask any shout outs that you have any events coming up or any resources you want to point anyone to who's interested in some of the stuff we talked about yeah um so fcf.org and gnu.org are great places if you want to get a nerdy somewhat technical introduction um to the idea of free software and why it's important um we have a conference that we run every year called rebrae planet which is in march in boston and it's very welcoming to people who don't already have a free software background. And there's a lot of space there to approach 
why free software is important from different angles, like whether you're just interested in it from a technical perspective, whether you're an activist for like privacy or civil liberties, or whether you're interested in, you know, basically like a DIY kind of attitude towards your computer, um, or you just want to meet people that care about this kind of stuff. Um, so I think that event is really great. I also think that the Electronic Frontier Foundation does an awesome job um, talking about general digital civil liberties issues, but if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know about the EFF. Um, and uh, I think those are the, the two things I would I would point to for starters. Cool. And Libra Planet is when again? It's in March. March. It's every March, and it's usually mm-hmm. in the Boston area. Okay, great. Cool. Um, well, thanks for talking. To stay in the loop, follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to our mailing list on netposy.com, and you can subscribe using iTunes.